this evening that we have a redeemer and a friend in thy son the lord jesus christ we're thankful for the forgiveness of sin that we can know thankful for the hope of eternal life that we can have in our hearts and we thank thee for providing us a place to meet and that we can be a true church a church that glorifies thee and helps others to know the truth and I pray that we would continue to do that we ask for wisdom we ask for boldness to be faithful to thee and to honor thee in all that is said and done here and in our own lives even when we're not here. We do pray for our country of Canada. We pray for our Prime Minister and his personal affairs as well as for his uh, duties as the Prime Minister. We pray, Father, for his spiritual needs, that he would be saved before it's too late, that he would realize that as his... uh, life around him is falling apart and the country is falling apart that he would realize he is responsible and he is accountable we pray for his cabinet we pray also for the opposition parties and for our own premier for our cabinet here and also for our municipality we pray for the salvation of many in these days of grace pray for the nation of israel and for the peace of jerusalem for mr netanyahu We ask that thy will would be done there, that he would see the need for knowing thee himself. And as the country continues to struggle to 
find a way to live at peace with the enemies, uh, the Muslim and Arab enemies. We pray that many Jews would be saved and also that many Arabs would be saved in these days of grace. We continue to pray for the situation in Ukraine and pray for uh, many to be saved there. Pray for the Christians there and in Russia that they would be faithful and encouraged in thee and be able to help others to know the truth. We continue to pray as well for the Christians in China as they certainly do not enjoy the freedom that we have in this country. We pray that they would be encouraged in thee and that they would be able to help others to know the truth. We do pray for Xi Jinping that he might even be saved as he is uh, directing his country to rewrite the Bible. And we know that that is a wicked thing and pray that he would rather be saved and others as well as they try to tamper with thy word that they might come under conviction and be saved in these days of grace. So guide us here, we pray, that we be faithful to thee and that others would see the importance of coming and we can be a help to people to know thy peace and blessing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And over to number three. Number three, sing praise to God who reigns above. Oh, 
Jethro, can you come here for a minute, please, Jethro? Let's see here. Want to give one of those to both your parents and one to Mrs. Ennison, one to Mrs. Dick. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Second Timothy, chapter three. Second Timothy chapter three. We're going to read there from verse ten to the end of the chapter, verse seventeen. We'll stand please for the reading of God's word. Second Timothy chapter three, beginning there at verse ten, it says But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we have thy word. We're thankful that we can read thy word and be reminded of many important things, many important truths that we need to know and that we need to be understanding. And we pray that as we continue to look at church history that we might understand that throughout church history persecution has been a constant for those who are truly saved. We understand that in our time there's not much persecution, but we understand that 
there's not much true faith either. So we pray that thou wilt help each one of us that are listening today, whether here or by live stream, that we would allow thee to examine our hearts and to show us if we're real, if we know thee as our God and Savior, if we're walking in obedience to thy word and ways and seeking to help others to know thy peace and blessing. We thank thee that we have the truth, that we can know the truth and we can walk in the truth. And we pray that we would not be ashamed of the truth, but willing to help others to know thy peace and blessing in these days of grace. We pray for Ronnie's boss and his co-workers, that uh, Ronnie would have a good testimony there and that they would see the importance of true biblical salvation as well and see that without knowing thee, they have no hope. May thy will be accomplished as we look into thy word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> the title of the message this evening is Persecution Will Follow True Saints. We're going to focus in on what it says there in verse 12. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now we've been looking at church history for the last several weeks on Wednesdays. So we're having topical studies there. And one of the things that we need to understand is that Jesus Christ is the head of every true church. And as we've been looking at church history, we have seen how that early on there was corruption. Uh, there was corruption while Jesus was on earth, and there was corruption after he left. And that corruption has been there in every generation since then. But in the meantime, there are still true churches today. Um, there was a, a man, he's dead now, by the name of Harold Camping, who believed that God was done with churches, and uh, he encouraged his people not to go to church, and he uh, spoke against uh, churches. But that man was a false teacher. Uh, churches are still, there are still true churches around today. There are not that many but there are still true churches around today and it is important to be able to identify a true church and to be a part of a true church if you're saved. Paul reminded Timothy in this uh, text that we're at that the study of God's word is not fun. In chapter 4, we see there that it says in verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. That word endure is not talking about fun. <laughs> Studying God's word takes effort. It's not something that the flesh wants to do. And it's not always going to be something that uh, we are going to recognize in the flesh at least as something that, well, this is really important. But uh, for in the spirit, we will recognize that studying God's word is always important. And church history is important for us to understand how God has worked through the centuries in spite of the attacks of the devil, how God has worked that in every generation there have been true churches. And that's because Jesus made a promise back in Matthew 16, verse 18 where he said that upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that's important to understand that. 
that true churches will be in existence until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to take the Christians out of this world at the end of this age. Just as the tribulation will begin, the rapture will take place, the true Christians will be taken out of here by Jesus Christ, and then the Antichrist will be set in his place, and he will try to rule the world, and he will have much difficulty and will be very ineffective, but will cause a lot of damage to a lot of people. Uh, yes, the, the material world is also going to be damaged, but that's going to happen by, by God. But the Antichrist is going to lead many people astray. Of course, they're going to be led astray because they rejected the truth. Nobody will have an excuse. The Bible is clear. <clears throat> no one will have an excuse as to why they didn't get saved. Everybody will be given, is given the light. John chapter 1 tells us that. And uh, everybody has opportunity to be saved. The sad reality is that most people don't want to be saved. Pride is a big problem for mankind. Unless we are humbled and willing to receive the truth, we are not going to be going to the place that many people want to go, their version of heaven. Heaven is real, but it's only for those who are born again through the blood of Jesus Christ. So I want to go over, first of all, the handout that you have there on the marks of a true church. Some of these things we've already looked at, but uh, I wanted to give that to you as for you to keep, and we want to go over that just to understand how do you define and how do you decide if the church you are attending, the church that you are considering, how do you decide if it's a true church? And so the first point that you have there is its head and founder is Christ. And that's important. Every true church has the same founder. So when you look at true churches, there should be some similarities. Now we have blue hymn books in our church. Some other church might have red hymn books. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about if you walk into a true church and they are singing, you should hear them singing hymns. That's something that should be the same in every true church. If you sit down and the pastor tells you to open your Bible to a certain passage, you should be reading from the King James Bible. Every true church will have that. Why do I say that? Because all the other perversions that are out there, and there are over a hundred of them, they are corrupt. They come from a corrupt text. They do not come from the Masoretic Hebrew. They do not come from the received text Greek. They are corrupt. And so they are going to have things missing. They're going to have things that are changed in them. So if a church is, has Jesus Christ as its founder, Jesus did not speak with a forked tongue like the natives complain about the Europeans. He spoke the truth, and he spoke the same thing everywhere he went. His message was the same. So if he's the founder of every true church, then the message that every true church preaches should be the same. Now, that doesn't mean that we have election error, that every uh, Baptist church tonight will be looking at the same thing, but as 
true churches study the word of God and if they come to the same passage over time then they should be preaching the same thing the same doctrines are the doctrines of every true church and that's important Jesus Christ in your paper there he is the lawgiver and the church is only the executive okay that's important he's the lawgiver and as the executive the church needs to follow the boss the lawgiver we need to preach according to his word and we are recorded from Matthew 16:18 let's go to colossians chapter 1 and verse 18 colossians chapter 1 and verse 18 And it says there that he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that in all things he might have the preeminence. The universal church idea that is quite common in our world today did not come into place until around the 4th century. It was during the time of Constantine that the universal church idea took root. Until that point, there was no such a thing. There was no talk of a universal church. But he's the one that, that amalgamated the church and the state. And when he did that, he demoted Jesus Christ. He became the head of the church and the state. And he demoted Jesus Christ. And it was at that time that the universal church idea came about. And he tried to force everybody to become a Christian according to his brand. But that was not there in the beginning. So in the Bible, when Jesus talks, upon this rock I will build my church, that the word church there is not talking about a universal church. The fact is, when Jesus was on this earth, there was only one church, and that was in Jerusalem. <coughs> Jesus Christ is the founder of that church and that's why in Acts chapter 2 you find that there were added unto them about 3,000 souls you can't add to something that doesn't exist so the church was started by Jesus Christ the first members of the first church were the apostles and then we read in Acts chapter 1 that there were about 120 people up there so that 120 they were already members of that first church in Jerusalem and then there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. <clears throat> it suggested that early on, I believe it was about the 2nd century or 3rd century, that there were, could have been upwards of 25,000 people in the church in Jerusalem. It grew rapidly. A lot of people were interested in the truth, and a lot of people were getting saved. They finally saw that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and many were being saved. Now, the Judaizers, the false uh, teachers, were there as well, trying to stop the spread of Christianity. Paul himself, being a Pharisee, prior to being saved as a name, with the name Saul, and he tried to stop the spread of Christianity, but he failed. Nobody can stop Christianity from spreading. We have seen in the last three years how that our country has tried to stop the spread of Christianity, and we have also seen how that they have, our government has been used to expose the false Christianity in this country. 
as we have seen many religious organizations that call themselves churches bowing to the threats of the government, they have proven who they really are. They have proven who their head is. And uh, it's not been a good thing. But God is purging out the dross so that people can see where the true church is, churches are, and how that they can then join one uh, or at least attend one and learn the truth and then when they're saved they can join one. So the only, the second point you have there is the only rule of faith and practice is the Bible. That's the only thing that we have to go by. Uh, We can look at commentaries We can look at at some other person, but the only rule that we have for faith and practice is the Bible. Everything that this church does must be based upon the Word of God. And if it's not, then it's just a tradition of men. Now, there are certain things that we do that are not wrong. We sit on chairs, we don't have benches, we don't have pews, that's not wrong. But that's not the thing that's important when it comes to doctrine. That's, again, what we're talking about. When it comes to how do we baptize people, that's a doctrine. That's something that we do based on the Word of God. That's why we immerse those who have a confession of faith, who have a testimony that they've been saved. We baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Do we have to go to the Jordan River to do that? No, that's not part of the doctrine. But it does need to be a body of water. It can be a tank, as some churches use. Personally, I believe that the tank should be such that the pastor can get into the water with the the person that's being baptized. That's the picture we have in the scriptures. And so that's that's the the way that I've always done baptisms. And uh, sometimes it's been in a tank. Sometimes it's been in a body of water. But always in that way. But we take our directions from the Word of God. And we see that in 2 Timothy. We read that in 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 to 17. It's the scriptures that convicted Timothy of his need of being saved. And it's the scriptures that we need in verses 16 and 17 to help us to know how to walk once we are saved. And that in verse 17, we can be truly furnished. Every part of my being can be furnished by the word of God. Everything that I do, I can be directed by God if I'm submissive to him as his child. And the name of a church, and this is again where people get hung up, but it's called a church. Doesn't have to have a fancy name, it's a church. And the Bible talks about it as churches. In Revelation, we've already looked at Matthew. Let's go to Revelation chapter 22. And in verse 16, it says, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. So again, the universal church, there's no such a thing as that in the Bible. John, or Jesus, sorry, I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. So uh, there are groups that get hung up on a name. I remember in uh, a church that I was pastoring that we had some visitors that came from the, um, 
Gospel Hall and Gospel Hall people. And uh, the guy said to me, the man said to me, you're sinning because your name is too long. Because they called themselves Gospel Hall. And we were called at that time, the church I was passing was called Lighthouse Baptist Church. And he said, your name is too long. Well, where does the Bible tell you that? And then we have now in our town, we have a group that calls themselves the Church of Christ. And in the Philippines, where they come from, they're called Eglisia Ni Cristo. And they claim that if a true church has to be called the Church of Christ. Well, you can't find that in the Bible that it tells you that anywhere. And the sad thing is, they're not even a Church of Christ. They don't even believe that Jesus Christ is God. So how can they then take that as their name? But it, it's not important. The name, yes, our name, Calvary Baptist Church of Treehern, it's called of Treehern because there are many Calvary Baptist churches. And so we put the name of Treehern on there. And then we have the, the incorporation because we're not a registered charity. And in order for us as a body to be able to buy this building, we had to be incorporated then if we were not a charitable organization. So that's why we have the ink afterwards because that's the only way as a group we could buy this building. Otherwise, one person would have had to buy it, and then the, build, the church would have had to have rented it from that person. So that's the, that's the way our system is in Manitoba. We had to do that in order to satisfy the law of Manitoba. Now, that doesn't interfere with us being able to preach the gospel. The, the, the uh, province of Manitoba doesn't have any hold on us, we're not a registered charity, so they can't tell us what to do and when to do it. They think they can, but they don't have that authority. They may take that authority at some point. They have tried already in the past, but legally they don't have that authority. They'd have to change the laws in order to be able to do that. And, of course, it wouldn't be beyond them to change the laws just to try to take over and make churches say what they wanted to say instead of what God wants them to say. But true Christians don't bow to the state. <clears throat> and then the fourth one you have, it's polity. So how does the church function? Well, we already looked at Jesus Christ as the head. Pastors are under shepherds. And true members are given a voice to speak to the issues. Members do not determine which doctrines are preached and which are not. Now, some Baptists believe that uh, believe in a congregational form of government where the membership is uh, all equal, and so the membership determines the course of the church. I don't believe that that's biblical. That's similar to a country that runs as a democracy, which is supposed to be people rule, but we know that in our country of Canada, in spite of the fact that our prime minister goes around boasting of how we are such a good democracy, we are a dictatorship. He rules, and his party rules, and everybody else must do what he says or else. That's not, that's not people rule. And when you have people rule, if our country was a democracy, it would be going to what it is today because you cannot run a country as a democracy. You can't even run a household as a democracy. In a house, God says that the man, the father, is the head of the house. The mother is the 
help that is meet for the man. She's submissive to her husband, and the children are submissive to both parents. That's God's design. And so in a church as well, the church has Jesus Christ as its head. The pastor is to be a God-ordained man who is the under-shepherd who, who guides the church according to the will of God. If you go in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 13. And in verse 7, it says there, Remember remember them which have their rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Now when it says there, who have their rule over you, it's not talking about that the pastor has the right to come into your house and tell you how to run your house and to watch over and make you run your house a certain way. But he does have the responsibility of telling you how a godly house should be run. You're accountable to God for how you run your house and how you run your life. But when it comes to the local church, the pastor does have the responsibility to say, this is what is required of a member of a true church. And he needs to uphold that. He needs to teach the people, this is what God's word says, and then he needs to uphold that in the church. Now, true Christians will see, as he teaches them the word of God, they will see, okay, this is what the Bible says in regard to how does a person get saved, what's required, how does a person get baptized, what's required, what's required for a person to become a member of a church, and what's required in order for a person to be able to be a leader in the church. <clears throat> so, uh, a true church for instance, will never have a woman as their song leader. A true church should never have a woman as well as the adult Sunday school teacher, unless it's a woman's class, if you're big enough that you need to have that. <clears throat> so there are certain things that the pastor teaches the people, but he's also responsible to make sure that the church is run properly. Then you go to verse 17, of the same chapter says obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief for that is unprofitable for you so again who are those that have the rule over you it's the pastor of the local church now we've said before in the bible a pastor is a bishop is an elder in some churches today, you have a hierarchy. In denominational churches, you have a hierarchy where you have the bishop who is above the elder who is above the pastor. But in the Bible, those three terms speak of the same individual. And so again, the Bible is where we take our authority from, not from tradition. Denominationalism is not biblical. It's something that was developed uh, coming out of Catholicism, but it's not biblical, and so we're not a denomination. We're an independent Baptist church, and uh, the sole authority that we have is the Word of God, and the pastor is responsible for teaching and upholding the Word of God in the local church. 
So members, when it comes to issues like, for instance, do we want to paint the walls? Do we want to reshingle the roof? Do we need different chairs? Do we need different hymn books? Those kinds of things, the membership has a voice. But when it comes to the doctrinal positions of the church, that's something that the pastor needs to teach and hold to, and the membership needs to agree to that because it's the Word of God. There's no vote on, should we baptize by immersion or do we do sprinkling or pouring? There's no vote on that. It's clear in the Bible what we need to do, so there's nothing to vote about. So a true church needs to understand that, that its authority comes from the Word of God, from Jesus Christ, who directs in the church. If you go in your Bibles to 1 Timothy, you see there, <clears throat> chapter 5, and verse 19. You see there, against an elder received not an accusation, but, by, but before two or three witnesses. So God puts a standard, a higher standard on the elder than he does on the member. In Matthew chapter 18, you find there that if you have a, a disagreement with a brother in the church, you go to the brother. If you can't resolve it, then you call two or three witnesses and you go back to the brother and try to resolve it. If that doesn't work, you bring before the church. But what the elder tells us here that you're not to bring an accusation against an elder, except it be two or three by two or three witnesses. So you may have a disagreement with the pastor of the church. You may have misunderstood something that he said. You can go to that pastor and say, here's what I heard you said. Can you explain that further? But you cannot bring an accusation against the pastor except it be, this is what you heard. Now you have to ask somebody else, did you hear that or what did I hear? Did I make a mistake in what I heard? There has to be two or three witnesses that the pastor taught something that was wrong. And then if that's true, if the pastor is not teaching right, then it says, them that sin rebuke before all that others also may fear. It doesn't say kick the pastor out. It says rebuke before all. Now, if the man is a heretic, uh, then uh, yes, then he needs to be chased out of town. But if he's, if he's not, if he, even if he did teach something wrong, maybe you misunderstood, maybe he didn't clarify it enough, whatever, but the man needs to have the opportunity to explain what he means, and the church doesn't gain by kicking pastors out here and there and everywhere. Uh, the statistics have shown over the years that it takes between three and five years for church members to gain trust in their pastor. And it takes up to seven years for the community to gain trust in the pastor of a local church. And yet in a lot of churches, their pastors are rotated out much sooner than that. So they're not even given the opportunity for the people to be able to get to know them, to see how they function, and to look at them over a period of time. How does this man function in different things, in different, as he faces different pressures? How does he handle them? And so there's, it's important to to understand that the man of God is to be a man of God, yes. So when you're, 
when you're calling a pastor. And again, that needs to be done in, in, uh, with lots of prayer. And as uh, I was reminded years ago that a pastor is not a hired man. Uh, he's not someone that, uh, again, the church has the right to dictate. This is what we want you to speak on. You, the, the membership can, can say, we'd like to have some teaching on this particular doctrine. That's nothing wrong with that. But again, the pastor needs to be led by God in regard to how he's going to teach and what he's going to teach. And if he's a man of God, he's going to recognize the need to look after all the doctrine and teach it in a way so that everybody gets fed properly. The Apostle Paul talked to the elders in Ephesus and said that he had not withheld, he gave them the whole counsel of God. And that's very important. And that's going to take time. That's not something you're going to do overnight. And that's going to be something that you need to be reminded of too over and over again. So the fifth one is that the members of any true church are only saved people. Now ultimately, that's something that um, you cannot know for sure. But you have to go by what you can do. And so when a person claims to be saved, they should have a testimony of salvation. And it should be more than just, uh, I was lost and I got saved. There should be a Bible verse. If a person gets saved, who's the one that does the convicting in their heart? It's not the pastor, and it's not anybody else. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, John chapter 14, is the one who convinces the lost person of God's righteousness, of judgment, and of their, uh, let me get the, get that right there, John 14. Sorry, John 16, of sin. Yeah, the first one is sin. When he has come, will recover, verse, uh, verse 8, when he, and when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So that's the work of the Holy Spirit. The pastor needs to teach properly, but the pastor needs to be careful not to play around with the emotions of the people to try to get the people to respond to what he wants. The pastor needs to let the Holy Spirit do his work and bring true, true conviction to the heart of the listener. That's God's work, saving of souls. So therefore... I believe that when a person is saved and if they want to get baptized and become a member, there should be a verse that spoke to their heart personally. Doesn't that be the same verse everybody else uses? But there should be a verse that they can say, this verse, when, when, when I heard this verse spoken, when I read this verse, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and showed me that I was lost and needed to be saved. There should be a verse or verses. Because it's God that does the saving. So the pastor doesn't give the, the person the testimony. But the pastor needs to examine the person. And the membership should have a, an opportunity there as well. To examine the person. To make sure that as far as we can tell. The person is saved. Now if the person is saved. And 
and you hear them walking out of the church and starting to curse and swear, well, that person's not ready to become to be baptized nor become a member of the church. They need to understand that when a person is saved, they're changed. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, yes, there needs to be growth. There needs to be growth in every one of us. But there needs to be a starting point. There needs to be a change that has taken place in the person's heart and life. So if we go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21... Ephesians 2, verse 21, speaking of the church, it says there, In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. <coughs> groweth. <coughs> First Peter chapter 2. We'll start there at verse 1. It says verse 5 there, but we'll start at verse 1. Wherefore laying aside <clears throat> all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, <clears throat> as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. <clears throat> if so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. In whom coming as unto a living stone, Disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so, verse 5, we're lively stones, we're, we're alive and we're growing. We're changing. We're becoming more Christ-like as we're growing in the Lord. Thank you. But it tells us there in verse 2 as well, well, verse 1, we there's things that we need to lay aside. After we've been saved, that old flesh, if we're, as we're studying the book of Galatians in our devotionals, the flesh is still very much a part of the Christian's life. But the flesh needs to be put to death. And so that's why it says here, laying aside all malice. So once a person is saved, they cannot be that same person that was uh, always out to get somebody else. <clears throat> and so laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings. We need to have a different nature, and we will have, sorry, not we need to, we will have a different nature once we are saved. But the old man's still going to try to interfere. And uh, depending on the individual, and depending how strong your habits have been prior to salvation, it may be something that's always going to want to raise its head for a little while. But again, if you're truly saved, you're going to stop and think. And if you don't, Someone, some other Christian is going to say to you, sorry, you shouldn't be talking that way. If you're saved, you shouldn't be talking that way. And if you're saved, you're not going to get angry with that person and say, never mind, I can do what I want. 
you're going to thank the person for being willing to help you to see that things need to change if you're saved. <clears throat> That's part of being created in Christ Jesus as a new creature, that things need to change. The basics are changed at the moment of salvation, and then now you need to grow. So in in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2 says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. So what's the sincere milk of the word? Well, that's the Bible. So the true Christian desires the word of God. He wants to read the word of God. He wants to know the word of God. He wants to know the God of the word better. And the purpose here in verse 2 is to grow. <clears throat> then in verse 3, we have that little word, if. So that's important. Again, Peter isn't just taking a, a brush and saying, you're all saved, and now this is what you should be doing. In verse 3, if so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So the opportunity is there to examine yourself. You, you claim to be a Christian. Are you laying aside the sins of the past? Are you desiring to grow? And if you're not, if you don't have that desire, if you have to be dragged to church, if you have to be uh, spoken to often about, did you read your Bible today? Did you read your Bible today? Well, no, didn't have time, didn't have time. There's something wrong. You eat every day. And if you're saved, you need your spiritual food. And so, in verse 5, as lively stones, the Christian is alive and needs to be growing. Built up a spiritual house. That's what happens. <clears throat> so then the ordinance, number 6, the ordinances. The church, a true church, has two ordinances. Now, in false religion, they have many sacraments. There's a difference between a sacrament and an ordinance. Uh, a true church doesn't have sacraments. Sacraments are man-made. Ordinances are from God. And so any true church only has two ordinances, believer's baptism and the Lord's Supper. You don't have the Lord's Supper if you haven't been baptized. Baptism and, and church membership come first, and then the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> and again, if we go back to Matthew chapter 28, it doesn't talk about uh, the Lord's Supper there, but it talks about proper teaching. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, and Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So, teaching is important for all people, lost and saved. Lost people need to be taught the importance of biblical salvation. What is it? How does a person get saved? <clears throat> Who saves a person? So teaching all nations. And then, after they're saved, then you baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. 
And then you continue to teach them. What are you teaching them now? To observe all things. So the child of God, even as our devotional for tomorrow talks about, the child of God needs to observe certain things. Not as a means of salvation. Salvation is gift of God. Man has nothing to do with that. Man needs to repent toward God and trust in Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. But if the person is saved, there are certain things that the Christian must observe. And it says here, teaching them to observe all things. And notice the next phrase, whatsoever I have commanded you. So it's according again to what God says, what Jesus says. So one of the things that the Bible is clear on and that has become uh, a bit of an issue in the time in which we live, but the Bible is still the Bible. But if you go in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of the book of Hebrews in this passage is talking to Christians and he says there in verse 21 and having an high priest over the house of God let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water So the writer here is talking to Christians, people who have had their hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and that's not talking about sprinkling in a form, a so-called form of baptism. There is only one definition of baptism, and that's immersion. So the devil has convinced people that sprinkling and pouring are baptism, but they're not. Baptism is immersion. So when it talks about our hearts sprinkled, first of all, you can't get water onto the heart of the person unless you cut them open. So the heart sprinkled is sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. So the Christian isn't someone who's on a roller coaster ride. He's got stability. And as he grows in the Lord, he gains in that stability. And then in verse 24, And let us consider one another to to provoke unto love and to good works. How do we do that? Verse 25, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So even in the time of the writer of the book of Hebrews, There were people who were professing to be saved who were not faithful to the local church in their area. They were forsaking the assembling of themselves together. And so the writer says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. And that's, this is God's word. This is not some man's opinion. And then it says there in verse 25, but exhorting one another and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Acts chapter 2 tells us that the first century Christians met together daily. We don't meet together daily. But even the few times that we do meet together, there are people that don't meet. And that's not helpful for them. 
again, it's not a matter of having a chart on the wall and saying, yeah, we had this many this week and this many uh, next week or last week or whatever. It's not a matter of brownie points. It's a matter of being faithful to God. It's a matter of being able to grow. And you can't grow unless you're being fed. And a person might argue and say, well, I can have personal Bible reading. Yes, and you should. And you can also have personal Bible study, and you should. But you can't take that and say, that's all I need. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. So again, the Bible is our authority. So the Bible teaches that we need to be gathering together. And we know that one of the times that the first century Christians met together was on the Lord's Day, Sunday. They met together on that day. But as we read in Acts 2, they met together every day. Now we have our Bible study on Wednesday. Some churches have it on Thursday. Uh, But just about, I I believe, every true church has a Bible study night. And uh, that's important to gather together for the study of God's word. <clears throat> and you're not doing the pastor a favor, you're doing yourself a favor when you're saved and you spend time in God's house with God's people in the word of God. We're not coming together to play bingo, we're coming together to study the word of God. <clears throat> so the church has two ordinances in verse 7 or number seven, I mean, it has two officers, the pastor and the deacon. First Timothy 3, verses 1 to 16. We won't read that whole passage. You can read it yourself, but it talks there about pastors and deacons. And those are the two officers in a local church. Now, you can have a song leader, you can have a treasurer, you can have a pianist, but the two main offices in a church are the pastor and the deacon. And that's where uh, the pastor, again, is the one whose chief duty is the preaching of the word. And in order to do that, he needs to be a student of the word. The deacons need to be there to assist in other things so that the pastor can function in his role of studying and preaching the word of God. So... The upkeep of a church building and things like that, that's where the deacons would come in. And that's where others can help out as well. There's no such a thing in the Bible as a deacon's board that meets together and decides we want our pastor to preach on this or whatever. Again, that's not biblical. So the deacons are there to assist the pastor, but not to direct the pastor. And then the work of the church. Number eight, what's the work of the church? Well, the work of the church is teaching the word of God. Teaching the word of God to the unbeliever that comes in so that the unbeliever can understand their need to be saved. Teaching the word of God to the saved person so that the saved person can grow and learn how to walk more faithfully with God. That's the purpose, and the work of the church is also baptizing those who get saved. And again, it's all done according to God's commandment. And then number nine, the financial plan of the local church, by tithes and offerings. 
1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14. First Corinthians nine verse fourteen. <clears throat> Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. So that comes from the tithes and the offerings. That's what the Old Testament was teaching. Keep in mind there are people who say, Well, tithing is not a New Testament thing, it's an Old Testament thing. Well, Abraham, and they claim it's it was given by the law of Moses. Abraham gave tithes before the law was given. That's what the writer of Hebrews mentions in chapter 7. So tithing is not uh, a legalistic thing that comes under the Mosaic law. It's a command of God. And then offerings as well. Offerings are something that are are given as the Lord prospers. In the Bible you never find that tithes were connected to uh, perks. They didn't tithe because they were going to get something back. They tithe because it belongs to God. The tenth belongs to God. There's no perks involved. There's no guarantee if I give 10% to the church, I'm going to get this back. That's not how God operates. We have grown accustomed in our time that most churches, again, they have, I believe they're wrong in being registered by the state. And then they can give out tax receipts. And people will give because they know they're going to get a tax receipt back. And so they can claim that on their income tax and then get some money back. So then they're not even giving 10% because they're getting some money back from the state. So, <clears throat> the. Again, we don't need that. True Christians recognize the value of the local church, the true local church. And so they understand that just as they need a certain amount of money in order to live in their own house, they got to pay the, the heat bill and the, the, the electric bill and the, and the water bill, and they got to buy groceries, and they got to do upkeep. Well, a church doesn't function without money either church doesn't waste money it doesn't blow money it doesn't need to be always upgrading because they think well unless the people see that we're doing something they're not going to give people give because they love the lord and again the main function of the church is to reach out and see people saved now again who's in charge of the salvation of sinners god is so again we can't say well there haven't been anybody saved in this church for a long time, so therefore it must not be following God. God is the one who's in charge of the numbers. And uh, so a church that is honoring God is reaching out in different ways, and God is the one who gives the increase according to his will. It's according to his plan. And when we start to manipulate things and we try to get people to pray the sinner's prayer just so we can impress others to give more, what are we doing? We have people that have a false uh, testimony of salvation. They're not truly saved. They just prayed after somebody, but it wasn't from their heart. If a person is convicted by God of their need to be saved, they will also be convicted of God in what to say. 
because the person that's been witnessing to them has been teaching them what does God require for a person to be saved. <clears throat> They'll understand that. Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so the the weapons, verse 10, how does the church conduct itself? What is the protection for the local church? And again, it's spiritual, not carnal. Second Corinthians chapter 10. Second Corinthians chapter 10. And verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So I listened to um, a short report of a, a woman in Ontario that over the last three years, with all the, the foolishness and wickedness of our governments, I don't know where her husband is. She has children. She's homeschooling, but I don't... In the part I listened to, there was never a mention of a husband. But anyway, she was homeschooling, and the government was putting restrictions on people, and she decided to go out and protest against the, the mandates. And uh, to her surprise, there were a number of other people that joined her in her protest, but the government didn't like it, and she was just uh, uh, found guilty and... Uh, charged $37,000 for her so-called illegal protest. Now, if she's a Christian woman, if she is a Christian woman, first of all, her pastor should have given her counsel and her husband also. And she would never have gone out there with her placards because you don't win anything by doing that. You just anger the, the, the bear and you create problems that don't help, don't resolve anything. So the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We don't use the same methods that the world uses to impress upon people their need to be saved. We preach the gospel. We simply do what's right. That's what Peter and John did. That's what the Apostle Paul did. They preached the gospel. They didn't have placards and, and protest what the government was doing. They preached the gospel. And the church membership at that time, when Peter was in prison, what did they do? They didn't get their placards out. They gathered for a prayer meeting. And God did the work. And God hasn't changed. So we don't use carnal methods to try to advance the cause of Christ. You can read Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 20 yourself. But we don't use man's methods to try to do God's work. And then number 11, the church needs to be independent. Independent in the sense that there's no hierarchy somewhere that doesn't know what's going on in Treehorn and tells us this is how you need to be functioning in Treehorn. We're independent. We're dependent upon Christ, but we're independent of any other church. We can ask for prayer support. We can ask for direction sometimes if we want to, but we're independent. We need to govern this church in the way that God wants us to do, and the state does not have the authority to tell us how we should be running this church. The state doesn't even know who should be a pastor. 
You can have a woman. You can have a sodomite. As far as the state is concerned, doesn't matter. The church, the state doesn't know who should get married. You can marry a man, can marry a man, a woman can marry a woman, and soon they'll be uh, marrying dogs and whatever else. In some places, they already they marry themselves. So the state doesn't have any understanding about how a church should function. And in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 21, it tells us there, They say unto him, Caesar's, then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. And again, what is the local church? 1 Timothy 3.15, it's the house of God. It's the pillar and ground of the truth. So when a local church decides that it's going to put itself under the authority of the state, how can it then become how can it then be the pillar and ground of the truth? Now the state is going to tell the local church this is what truth is and this is what you know, we hear that so much in the last three years, two words, misinformation and disinformation. And both of those terms that are being used now are terms to speak of lies. The one would refer to what society calls a white lie, and the other would be a blatant lie. The Bible doesn't have that classification. A lie is a lie. And the one that is lying to us is the government and the medical profession and the doctor, I mean, and the police forces. They're the ones that are lying. Those who are trying to tell us that, first of all, this virus was programmed in a lab funded by taxpayer money, that's not a lie, that's a fact. Those who are telling us that the shots that they have developed, they're not vaccines, they're poison shots, that's not a lie, that's a fact as well. Those who are telling us that the lockdowns were harmful, very harmful to humanity, that's not a lie, that's a fact. Many elderly people died because they were lonely and they just lost hope. They gave up. Many young people are suffering right now because of the mandates that they had to live under for those that while because their parents didn't know how to say no. And so the, the, there's been a lot of trouble brought upon societies in, in every country that followed the lies of the World Health Organization that are going to affect people for a long time. And they're planning the next situation. It's not a pandemic. We didn't go through a pandemic. They changed the definition of that word to scare people. But this whole hoax that we've gone through, yes, there were people that died, but they died of influenza A, they died of cancer, they died in car crashes, they died of all kinds of things, but everything was the Wuhan virus. And now they're planning the next one. Plus they're using the so-called man-made climate change to scare people as well. <clears throat> but they're not turning to God. And that's the hope of man. And God doesn't want us to live in fear, he wants us to live in hope. And we can have that hope when we know him as our God and Savior. We have his forgiveness and his peace in our hearts. And then we can begin to function properly. 
God helps us to understand what is truly contagious and what is not. And when someone coughs, it's only right that you put your hand in front of your mouth when you cough. And if you cough into your hand and now you're going to shake somebody's hand, well, that's not the thing to do either. But coughing into your sleeve might be an answer, but if you don't have long sleeves on, you're not coughing, you're coughing on your skin anyway, so it's spreading anyway. So there's a lot of things that, that our society tells us to do that aren't really very functional. But God helps us to understand how to live in a way that we can protect ourselves and protect others. And uh, it's becoming more and more clear that our society doesn't know how to do that anymore. They're not interested in that. They're just simply interested in controlling us and making us all think the same way. That's what Hitler did. That's what Xi Jinping does in China. That's what communist countries do all across the world. And uh, that's what our government is trying to do to us as well. So I hope that helps as you take that paper home with you and keep it for future reference. And we'll continue to look at church history in the weeks to come. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful again that we have thy word. We're thankful again that we have the truth. We can know the truth. We can be set free from sin. And we can have thy peace in our hearts. We're thankful that as we look at church history, we can see that there are certain things that should be in every true church. And if we take thee, thy son, as our head, and if we take thy word as our final authority, we can function the way that we should. And we can be a blessing in the community in which we are. And we can also be a blessing to others through the Internet. So we're thankful that we don't have to be reinventing the wheel but that we can function in a manner that would make us identifiable with the first century churches. And we can be a help to other people. I pray that we'd not be ashamed of the truth, but that we'd be bold for thee and glorify thee and seek to help others to know the truth. We pray for anyone that's listening that's not saved, that they might see the importance of repentance toward thee and trusting in thy son the lord jesus christ alone for their salvation that they could have thy peace and blessing in their heart we pray in jesus name amen